the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is the time. Today we're going to talk with the stream's Rachel Alexander. We'll talk about New York Governor Andrew Cuomo and his attacks on crisis pregnancy centers. In fact, a campaign against them in the state of New York. We're also going to talk with James Robin. He is the author of Erasing America, Losing Our Future by Destroying Our Past. That's coming up uh, later this hour. First, some of the developing news stories of the day. An illegal immigrant has been charged with murder and the death of Iowa student Molly Tibbetts, whose body was believed to have been recovered on Tuesday, more than a month after she was reported missing. The suspect made his first appearance in court today. And Michael Cohen, the president's former longtime personal attorney, pled guilty to violating campaign finance laws and arranging hush money payments for two women who allegedly had affairs with uh, Donald Trump before he was president, but nonetheless, at the time of the campaign, paying them off. Pundits debate how much potential legal jeopardy the president faces, and we'll talk more about that. Uh, later in the program as well. By the way, New York state investigators have issued a subpoena to President Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, as part of the Trump Foundation probe, uh, which is something separate and apart. The Associated Press reported that uh, earlier today. Uh, this is a developing story. Former uh, Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort faces up to 80 years in prison after a jury convicted him of eight counts of bank and tax fraud. President Trump called Manafort's conviction a disgrace that has nothing to do with Russian collusion. And Wyoming State Treasurer Mark Gordon defeated Trump-backed billionaire Foster Freeze in the state's GOP gubernatorial primary race on Tuesday. That was obscured by other headlines that people were drawn to. Well, the suspect, uh, the suspect rather, in the killing of Iowa college student Molly Tibbetts is a 24-year-old in the country illegally from Mexico who had been living in the area for up to seven years, officials uh, revealed today. Um, Christian Bahina Rivera was arrested yesterday and charged with first-degree murder in the death of the 20-year-old Tibbetts, who was reported missing more than a month ago. Rivera was scheduled to earlier today to make an initial court appearance. That was 1 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. Uh, Tibbetts was last seen jogging on the 18th of July near Brooklyn, Iowa, uh, where Rivera lives. A body believed to be Molly Tibbetts was discovered in a cornfield, and Rivera led authorities to that location. A special agent in charge of the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation confirmed. Tibbetts' alleged murderer and the revelation that uh, suspect Christian Rivera is an illegal immigrant, immigrant rather, sparked almost immediate comparisons to the death of Kate Steinley, who was shot and killed on the San Francisco Pier in 2015. Investigators said the suspect was uh, in the U.S. illegally. A jury acquitted him of murder, manslaughter, and assault last year, but convicted him of being a felon in possession of a firearm. And Michael Cohen, President Trump's longtime personal attorney, admitted on Tuesday to violating federal campaign finance laws by arranging hush money payments to adult film star, well, I'm not even going to mention their names, at the direction of then-candidate Trump. In entering the plea, Cohen did not specifically name the two women or Trump, recounting instead that he worked uh, with an unnamed candidate 
candidate, but the amounts and dates all lined up with the payments made to Daniels and McDougal. And his attorney later came out to clarify that it was, in fact, Donald Trump, the candidate. In total, Cohen pled guilty to five counts of tax evasion, one count of making false statements to a financial institution, one count of willingly causing an unlawful corporate contribution, and one count of making an excessive campaign contribution. The deal does not involve a cooperation agreement with federal uh, prosecutors, although he seems set to do just that. He's set to be sentenced on the 12th of December. In a statement, uh, President Trump's attorney, um, uh, Rudy Giuliani, said that there is no allegation of any wrongdoing against the president in the government's charges against Mr. Cohen. It's clear that, as the prosecutor noted, Mr. Cohen's actions reflect a pattern of lies and dishonesty over a significant period of time. Cohen attorney Lonnie Davis told Fox News that Cohen's involving involvement rather, in the Trump-Russia investigation does not end with a plea deal, but in fact, it's only the beginning. Well, scholars disagree over how much potential legal jeopardy the president faces. George Washington University law professor Jonathan Turley said on special report that President Donald Trump may end up in uh, an unindicted co-conspirator in the case. However, Harvard law professor emeritus Alan Dershowitz uh, said that Cohen's uh, guilty pleas may cause some trouble for Trump, but that they are not lethal to his presidency. We'll see as uh, this investigation continues, which is right. Well, a federal jury in Virginia convicted former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort on eight counts of bank fraud and uh, and tax fraud, making him the first campaign associate of the Trump of the President uh, Trump found guilty by a jury as part of a special counsel, Robert Mueller's uh, probe. But after four days of deliberations, the jury told the judge on Tuesday afternoon that it couldn't come to a decision on 10 other counts related to financial crimes. A mistrial was declared on those counts. I feel very badly for Mr. Manafort, uh, the president told reporters uh, last evening. After landing in uh, West Virginia for a political rally, it has nothing to do with the Russian collusion, he added, calling Mueller's probe a witch hunt. The government has until the 29th to decide whether it will move to retry the 10 deadlocked counts and Manafort is facing a maximum sentence of 80 years in prison. Wyoming State Treasurer Mark Gordon won a fiercely contested GOP primary to replace term-limited uh, limited Republican Governor Matt Mead on Tuesday, prevailing over a billionaire businessman who received a last-minute endorsement from President Trump. Foster Fries, the GOP uh, mega-donor who Trump tweeted would be strong on crime, border, and Second Amendment, is a major financial contributor to Christian causes, causes rather, which analysts had predicted might help him uh, secure Wyoming's religious votes in the race against Gordon and several other candidates. Well, the president, who had aggressively campaigned nationally for various state candidates ahead of November uh, the November midterm elections won the state by more than 40 points in 2016. His endorsement has carried significant weight in several primary races this year, helping to oust Rep- Representative Mark Sanford in South Carolina in a stunning upset and keeping Representative Martha Roby's uh, candidates, uh, candidacy alive in Alabama. But it wasn't enough on Tuesday, as vote tallies showed Freeze um, trailing Gordon by more than six percentage points with virtually all precincts reporting. Meanwhile, Senator John Bassaro, a vocal supporter of President Trump, fended off a well-funded challenger in Wyoming's Republican primary uh, last night, soundly defeating Jackson Hole business investor Dave Dodson by more than 30 percentage points. In Alaska, former uh, state Senator Mike Dunleavy won the Republican nomination for governor, setting the stage for what's expected to be a three-way fight for the office this fall. 
Uh, he topped a crowded field in Tuesday's GOP primary that included former Lieutenant Governor Meade Treadwell, uh, who was, had fashioned himself as the more experienced candidate. And on this day, back in 1932, the British Broadcasting Corporation conducted its first experimental television broadcast using a 30-line mechanical system. And that's where it all began back in 1932 in the U.K., you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 15 minutes after 4 o'clock. Up next, we'll talk with the stream's Rachel Alexander. We'll find out what New York's governor, Andrew Cuomo, is up to in attacking crisis pregnancy centers. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Seventeen minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, in response to President Trump's nominating a pro-life judge, Brett Kavanaugh, for the Supreme Court, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is striking back, citing fears that Roe versus Wade will be reversed by the new composition of judges, justices rather, on the Supreme Court. He's launched an awareness campaign titled Know Your Options. Well, here to talk with us about this campaign is Rachel Alexander, who writes for The Stream. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. Well, Brett Kavanaugh has yet to uh, have a hearing. Uh, we know that the uh, Republicans hold the majority in the Senate, so it's likely he's going to be um, confirmed. But the governor of New York has decided to take it upon himself to initiate a campaign that uh, is particularly critical of crisis pregnancy centers. Tell us what the uh, governor is doing. Yeah, what he's doing is he is saying negative things about crisis pregnancy centers. He's saying they're, you know, fake health care services. And um, he's trying to respond to what he says are repeated attacks on access to reproductive health care. He's basically saying if you're a crisis pregnancy center, you're not a real health center for women, and he's going to spread this everywhere. He's going to put it, you know, bulletin boards in the subways, you know, five different languages so everybody can read it. And he's basically scaring people away from crisis pregnancy centers. So how does this um, match his effort to discourage confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh and encourage the uh, the continuation of abortion on demand as prescribed under Roe versus Wade? How how do the the two things link in his mind if it's possible to interpret? Yeah, he's thinking you know if the Supreme Court does reverse Roe v. Wade that he can then present a state challenge to that you know maybe on Tenth Amendment grounds. Or maybe the Supreme Court will just say abortion should be left up to the states. And if so, he's just guaranteeing that New York will continue providing abortions. Now, my understanding is he attempted to have the legislature there um, codify Roe versus Wade, at least the principle of it, in state law. In the event that Roe versus Wade is overturned, there would be no interruption in the state of New York. Yeah, it's almost like he's doing double duty. Like, he thinks, okay, we need to stay legislature, we need, you know, executive orders for me. I mean, he's going all out. And this is on top of previous executive orders he's done, you know, requiring insurance companies to pay for abortions, contraceptions, and you can't even have co-pays or anything like that. He's requiring New York insurance companies to pay 100%. So is he up for re-election? What, what's behind his, um, his aggressive push uh, in support of abortion and in opposition to crisis pregnancy centers? My guess is, I could be wrong, is New York has gone so far to the left um, that he is just preaching to the choir. I mean, you just had that woman, Olivia, uh, what's her name, 
the, the congresswoman, she's going to be the next congresswoman from New York. She's a socialist. She mm-hmm. was just elected. So Cuomo's, I think he's just preaching to the base. What impact has this campaign had or might it have on the crisis pregnancy centers throughout the state of New York? Well, they're going to get less business. Women are going to be scared off from going to them. Um, less women are going to be deterred from abortions. You know, a woman Googling is probably going to find this authoritative New York, you know, government uh, site that says here are women's health uh, centers if you are pregnant, and they're going to go to a place like Planned Parenthood where they're not really going to get much of an option. They're just going to be pushed towards abortion, as I cite in my article, Abby Johnson, who used to work for Planned Parenthood, said there's a lot of that type of manipulation going on. Is there a, a pushback on the part of pregnancy resource centers or those who are opposed to abortion in the state of New York? You know, I've seen a, a lot of conservative media coverage of it. I have not seen anything yet by the crisis pregnancy centers themselves. Well, I, I would encourage our listeners who'd like to learn more, certainly to read your article, but to also go to um, uh, Abby Johnson. She has a, a page, checkmyclinic.org, and she uh, runs that website. She compiles uh, reports of uh, how some of these clinics uh, manipulate their would-be clients, um, another source to, to learn more. Now, the, the campaign directs people to visit um, ny.gov uh, backwards slash planning for more information. But when you go there, there's no information about pregnancy resource centers. It's essentially uh, inviting people to go to an abortion clinic. Is that correct? Yeah, it's very one-sided. It's not fair. Um, it's, it's just an absolute, you know, nail in the coffin of life is what it's doing. And uh, I feel bad for all these women because, as we all know, you know, women tend to regret their abortions after they've had them. Yeah, we do know that. Hey, thank you so much for writing on the subject and for talking with us today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Just a couple of things uh, came to mind. A Portland-based ice cream shop is partnering with NARAL. National Abortion Rights Action League to create a controversial abortion-inspired ice cream. Now, you might have a hard time, as I did, putting the two together, ice cream, abortion. Anyway, they have an abortion-inspired ice cream flavor to save Roe from President Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh. For a limited time, their um, uh, What's the Scoop customers can order a pint of Rocky Roe versus Wade uh, it's going to cost you almost 10 bucks for the ice cream. It's to help defend reproductive freedom, which hasn't been challenged, according to a NARAL pro-choice Oregon fundraising poster. It's the hot weather and political climate getting you down. It's time to eat more ice cream. NARAL pro-choice Oregon wrote on its Facebook encouraging people to buy this ice cream in celebration of and support of abortion. Uh, writes um, one uh, responder to this uh, campaign, Grayson Dempsey, um, actually Grayson Dempsey is the director of uh, NARAL Pro-Choice. What's disgusting is shaming women and terrorizing local business, Dempsey said, when uh, tweets blasting the fundraiser as disgusting and ce- for celebrating abortion with ice cream uh, were, uh, were posted. It's truly appalling that any organization would trivialize abortion, which even Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy recognized is a weighty, life-changing decision that many women, like me, come to deeply regret. By turning it into a joke and a tongue-in-cheek ice cream flavor, writes 
Catherine Glenn Foster, president and CEO of AUL, Americans United for Life. This kind of twisted humor diminishes the living experiences of millions of women and may be why so many Americans are waking up to the reality of abortion, why we increasingly favor life-affirming laws and policies, and it distorts the joyful and childlike qualities of ice cream and tries to corrupt a delicious frozen treat into a perverse political statement based on the public reaction uh, on social media, that turns the stomach of Americans nationwide. Well, the back and forth uh, continued. And then uh, Oprah's magazine, O Magazine, um, was promoting Shout Your Abortion. It's a movement, apparently. Well, the inspiration section of the entertainment uh, celebrity Oprah Winfrey's magazine, O, promotes the, uh, the uh, founder of a movement to publicly celebrate abortion and her new Shout Your Abortion book. Well, the magazine's July issue features how one woman became an activist with a hashtag Shout Your Abortion, uh, also posted on Oprah.com. On July 13th, the Inspiration article is a narrative written by Amelia Barrow, or rather Bonow, I guess that's the correct pronunciation, describing how her support for the federal funding of Planned Parenthood and her gratitude for her own abortion prompted her to launch the hashtag Shout Your Abortion movement. When I found out that the House of Representatives had voted to defund Planned Parenthood, I kind of unraveled, she writes. I opened Facebook and without thinking wrote, like a year ago, I had an abortion at Planned Parenthood and I remember this experience with a nearly inexpressive level of gratitude. I hit post 153 words later and everything changed. She's starting a movement to celebrate her abortion, and apparently O Magazine has come alongside to celebrate it with her. I don't know about you, but I find that um, disgusting would be the right word, but distasteful. We'll go with that for the the moment. I'm going to skip around here because I don't want to get into a... um, Thing about the president's uh, controversies until a bit later. So uh, Todd uh, Starnes points out that uh, California Democrats are preparing for a crackdown on churches. Now, we've been following uh, a bill in the state of California that would limit speech in certain areas as it relates to uh, providing counseling for those who have unwanted same-sex attraction. Well, Christians across the nation are expressing grave concerns over a proposed California law that would outlaw speech dealing with certain issues, including homosexuality and gender identity by clergy members, licensed counselors, and others. I'm referring to Assembly Bill 2943. It was authored by Democratic Assemblyman Evan Lowe, and it would utilize the state's existing consumer fraud statute to classify gay conversion therapy, which is not what most Uh, counselors use as a fraudulent practice. Well, state senators uh, passed the legislation last Thursday and the assembly is poised to take up the final vote before the bill is sent to Democratic Governor Jerry Brown. They have to reconcile the two versions. The faith community, like anyone else, needs to evolve with the times. That's what Democratic Assemblyman Al Maratsuchi said uh, during a debate on the legislation. The science is clear. The claim that the First Amendment can be used as a defense to promoting fraudulent conduct is a fallacious argument, he says. Well, Dr. Paul Chappelle, a pastor of Lancaster Baptist Church and the president of a West Coast Baptist College, said there is a groundswell of opposition rising up among Christians and conservatives to the assembly uh, bill. This is an encroachment by the state, Chappelle said, because it goes beyond this specific therapy, in quotes. Any conversation, any attempt to work with someone who has unwanted same-sex attraction, 
uh, and would, would prefer uh, to move beyond that would be prohibited from offering such advice. And there's been some concern, although I'm not certain it applies across the board, that even scripture, even the Bible would be, uh, would not be permitted in counseling if those references were made. Um, Alliance Defending Freedom attorney Matt Sharp said the legislation makes it unlawful for any person to sell books, counseling services, or anything else that helps someone overcome unwanted same-sex attraction or gender identity confusion. As a result, it could be a violation if a pastor encourages a congregant to visit the church bookstore to purchase books that help people address sexual issues, perhaps including the Bible itself, which teaches about the importance of sexual purity within the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, the, the Alliance Defending Freedom called the breadth of the uh, censorship staggering. Uh, a religious ministry could not hold a conference on maintaining sexual purity if the conference encourages attendees to avoid homosexual behavior. In fact, several conferences that had been planned for the state of California uh, were moved in anticipation of this legislation. A bookstore, even online bookstores, could not sell many recently published books challenging gender identity ideology and advocating that these beliefs should be rejected by society. A pastor paid to speak at an event addressing current social topics could not encourage Encourage attendees that they can uh, prevail over same-sex desires or feelings uh, that they were born the wrong sex. Republican Assemblyman Travis Allen warned that the bill's language is so broad it could even lead to the Bible being targeted. The Bible's teachings, if taken literally, could very clearly be a direct violation of AB 2943, he said. Um, the faith community has every reason to be up in arms. And this, again, is from an assemblyman about this. Once Democrats start talking about banning books, this is a road we do not want to go down, end quote. Well, Democratic State Senator Scott Weiner dismissed concerns that the legislation could eventually lead to a ban on Bible sales, saying that the bill does not prohibit the sale of the Bible. That's an argument that uh, we've heard that's untrue. However, it does, it does have the potential of uh, prohibiting certain um, passages in the scripture from being uh, used to teach or to counsel. He goes on to say it does not in any way prohibit free speech. It doesn't prohibit anyone from speaking with a counselor, including a religious counselor, regarding their sexual orientation, as long as no money is exchanged, as long as no services are sold, he says. Well, David French, writing in National Review, said that the law would loom over booksellers and churches, establishing a chilling effect and providing a pretext for even more secular booksellers to refrain from stocking certain Christian titles, no matter how well-reasoned. Um, uh, again, this, uh, this legislation has now passed in the Senate, and uh, my understanding is the House will have to vote on the, uh, the measure to reconcile the version it had already passed with the one that was amended in the Senate, and it is expected that the governor will sign it, although there has been some hesitation in this process given the Supreme Court decision uh, of just a few, uh, few weeks ago. We're going to continue to follow this story and uh, let you know what happens next. 31 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 34 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In towns and cities all across the Fruited Plain, a tidal wave of social activism is systematically erasing pieces of American history. 
Activists are destroying monuments, burning flags, banning American literature, disregarding the national anthem. Before long, there will be no monument dedicated to American heroes, no stories that praise them. The United States will have become a dark chapter in human history best forgotten. Well, in Erasing America, Losing Our Future by Destroying Our Past, James Robbins reveals the dire situation America currently faces. Americans are the guardians of a magnificent uh, legacy of ordered liberty. To pass it on, we have to view the past with understanding and present it with gratitude the future with hope well, erasing america is a call to do just that and a warning of what could happen if we don't well my guest is um james robbins a phd and a senior fellow for national security affairs at the american foreign policy council a commentary writer for usa today and a member of the advisory board of the national civil war museum previously he was an award-winning editorial writer at the washington times a professor at the national defense university and special assistant in the office of the secretary of defense he holds a doctorate from the fletcher school of law and diplomacy at tufts university and has authored other books including the real custer uh, from boy general to Tragic Hero. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, Erasing America, Losing Our Future by Destroying Our Past. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on. Well, let's talk about where we stand in terms of understanding and teaching our own nation's history. Now, I'm the descendant of uh, slaves in this country, yet I uh, appreciate the history of the country that uh, they fought bravely uh, for and many died for. Where do we stand as a country in telling our story uh, well, and uh, why is it important that we know that history in moving forward? Well, I think that there's a... a strong division in the country over history and its meaning. And it's a relatively new phenomenon because if you go back 20 or 30 years, you have people on the right and the left who had sort of different variations on the themes, but the fundamentals were strong. People respected the flag. They respected the founding. It's not to say that our country was perfect or everything in the past was, you know, was wonderful. But there was there was a basic acceptance that this was a good country, that the people in the country were decent, and that our, our history was something to be proud of. Now, let's talk about what it means to, um, to embrace the flag, to believe the things that you've just described. Because I think some people imagine that if I honor the flag, if I... Um, respect our nation's history, that somehow denying the, the parts of our history that, are, uh, that we're less proud of, that we can, we, we can appreciate and love our country while acknowledging those areas in which we have fallen short. Yeah, it's really unfortunate that, that it's gotten that way, that now the flag has become a, a symbol that's sort of one side likes it and the other side doesn't. You know, I think back to uh, the Selma marchers who were carrying the American flag and they were singing the Star Spangled Banner because they were telling Americans, hey, you can do better, you know, live up to your ideals. But today it seems like like there's a, a substantial group in this country who either don't believe that we could ever live up to our ideals or they reject those ideals. And so it, it's put this sort of fundamental break where you can't really cross that boundary. There's really no discussion over that.
Now, most of us, when we celebrate the nation, we are celebrating what you've just described, the ideals. We may not have reached them perfectly. We may still be aspiring toward them, but we shared a common appreciation and regard for our ideals. Have we fallen to the degree now where we don't even share a common set of ideals to which we aspire, even if we admit that we've uh, thus far fallen short or haven't, um, haven't achieved them perfectly? Yeah, I think that, that there's definitely that split now because uh, when now that people are uh, questioning every aspect of history, uh, portraying the founders as fundamentally evil, uh, and then all of the people in history uh, who, you know, again, nobody's perfect. People had, had problems, uh, things that today we would criticize, but those criticisms are now overwhelming any other good aspects that uh, these people might have had. And like, you know, Thomas Jefferson, for example, he was a slave owner. He had uh, very ambivalent ideas about that, but he's also author of the Declaration of Independence and he's revered as one of our founders. Yet at uh, the University of Virginia, the school that he founded, his statue is repeatedly vandalized. Uh, people call him a racist and a rapist and things like that. Well, you know, that's not really advancing the discussion. Well, let's talk about what's at stake. Why does history matter? And if we don't uh, know our own history, and I'm referring to the history of America, what's at stake? Well, I think the history is important because we have to understand where we came from, uh, the good and the bad. I think that a lot of it is really good. I think that this country has been a remarkable experiment in human freedom and in progress in overcoming challenges. And that process can continue to be ongoing. But if you look backwards and say, you know what, the, the, the country was built on slavery, it was built on imperialism, uh, it was built on exploitation, everything in the past is bad and we just need to, to wipe all that out. Well, we're going to lose a lot of the really positive and great aspects of this country. And I hope that's not a conscious agenda on the part of uh, many of the progressives, but sometimes I have my doubts. Let's talk about national unity. One of the things that held us together was a common regard for our nation's history, warts and all, and to, to have some perspective on where we came from and where we are headed, and that would inform the things that we would prioritize in the future uh, that needed improvement. What's at stake if we no longer share a common uh, view that, that unites us in some way, uh, that keeps us as a, a cohesive uh, nation as we have been historically? Well, you know, the entire foundation of the Constitution is the idea of compromise. And our political system has always been one in which compromise is what makes progress. People have to get together and iron out their differences because those differences will always exist. And if you can't do that, then you get situations like we have today where everything is just it's like a barroom brawl and things just aren't getting done the way that they could if people work together better. So to the extent that the two sides keep retrenching and, and keep drawing away from each other and keep rejecting the norms of compromise, our system simply cannot function. The Constitution is completely based on the notion of compromise. That's why it has overlapping powers and 
you know, different types of votes needed for different things. And so we really need to reverse course on that and get to a point where people can start to look to the national good in ironing out these problems and less to kind of a partisan lens where everything becomes, you know, winner take all. Is the problem that we don't know our history or that we've rejected our history or we misunderstand uh, our history? Oh, I think it's parts of all three, actually. Um, And it's strange to me because today with the Internet, we have, and all the digitization going on, we have more information at our fingertips than ever before. And there is a lot of good work being done out there with all of these archives. But it also seems like people have retreated into their little information bubbles and they just pick out the facts that they like and that support their arguments and they kind of stick to that. And that's another symptom of this national divide that we're talking about. So uh, a well-rounded understanding of history means you have to go back and look at all the aspects of it, the good things that you like, the bad things that you don't like, but understand that all of these things coexisted at the same time, and they're going to coexist today as well. How important is understanding our history in the broader context of what was going on and has gone on in the rest of the world and recognizing the uniqueness of this experiment as opposed to what was going on simultaneously elsewhere and what preceded it? Oh, yeah, it's vitally important, um, particularly as the world grows closer and we have to understand more and more people and their cultures and how we fit into that global framework. Uh, It's important to know that. And it's also important to know what we bring to the table in that discussion, you know, and understanding our history in that regard. The United States is a pretty remarkable country, Uh, you know, a country founded on an idea, not on race, not on religion, not on, you know, a landmass, but on an idea of freedom. And that's unusual in the world. There aren't a lot of countries like that. So as we go out in the world and interact with other countries, uh, and sometimes, you know, feeling like, oh, well, what can, you know, what can we take from them that's really good? Like, like, how can we be better to be like them? Well, you know, maybe they could be better to be like us, too. It's not just a one-way street. We're talking about the book Erasing America, Losing Our Future by Destroying Our Past. We're talking with Dr. James Robbins. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. I do need to take a quick break, and we will be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Dr. James Robbins. He's the author most recently of Erasing America, Losing Our Future by Destroying Our Past. We're looking at conflicts over history and heritage, the founders, the flag, religion, holidays, immigration. Um, this is a breakdown of the shared sense of nationality, and there's a growing division across the country. And many of us are wringing our hands, not quite sure how to move forward. Let's talk about some of the specifics of the uh, the challenges that we are facing. For example, the national anthem and some of our unifying national symbols. Where do we stand? Well, you know, the whole um, NFL kneeling controversy has really brought that to the fore. Uh, it's hard not to have an opinion on it these days. But, um, you know, traditionally the national anthem has been something that people rally around. It's something that, that people revere. It was played at games 
uh, you know, baseball and football because it was a way to bring people together. But now it's being seen as a symbol of division. And that's really not a positive development. There's really no reason uh, to see it as a symbol of division. And I go into the book in detail on the idea that there, like, there's racist code language in it, which is actually not true. So um, hopefully people can, can figure out a way to uh, come back together on this issue because you know, the, the whole point of the anthem is to make us remember that we're all Americans together. Let's talk about... Um uh, religious principles that were traditionally an important part of American public life, but we can't even agree on certain phrases uh, that have essentially been canonized, God bless you, or uh, or um, in God we trust, that are being challenged as well. Um, in, in favor of diversity that focuses on our differences uh, rather than the things we share in common. Well, you know, traditionally our country has been one of faith, uh, people came to this country in many cases because they were persecuted for their religion abroad, so they came here to find a way to worship uh, in the manner of their choosing. And there is religious freedom in the country. Uh, it's In the past, they, these types of disputes would arise over First Amendment questions, like could you have prayer in school or could you have a nativity scene on public grounds? But increasingly, it's becoming more of an, a, one of these uh, diversity issues where you're excluding somebody else if you say, for example, God bless you if someone sneezes, or any kind of public expression of faith is inherently exclusionary to those who do not share that faith. And that's really troubling because people should be able to express the things that are so deeply held in their hearts, their faith, and, you know, how they view God. Or if they don't view God, you know, that's also perfectly acceptable in this country. But making that a, a focus outside of politics, which is kind of an everyday life, that's, that's very damaging because it, it offends so many people. And I really think the folks who are making this an issue should try to understand how important it is to others to have their faith and to be able to express it. The, the idea of um, being easily offended and embracing diversity on the one hand, but defining it so narrowly that it really doesn't reflect any real difference that may exist among us uh, other than superficial uh, diversity. How much of a challenge is it for us to renegotiate what uh, diversity actually means and then tolerating one another when we have differences of opinion? Well, it's a big challenge, uh, particularly when people say, well, in the, name of, in the name of inclusion, we have to exclude a bunch of stuff. Or, uh, you know, in the name of diversity, we have to stamp out differences. It's almost a, a twisting of the language. <clears throat> really, People just, you know, not just tolerance, but acceptance, I think, is what is needed. Understanding that there are a whole lot of differences in this country. Our whole country is based on differences. And we gain strength from having those differences. So I think if people understand that maybe they don't have all the answers, you know, have a little humility in approaching some of these important questions, I really think that's the starting point. Uh, and then understanding that other people, you may not agree with them, but it doesn't mean that their ideas or, or where they're coming from doesn't have a basis or may not even be valid. 
let's talk about the notion that we are a nation with a history worth remembering when there are challenges to whether or not we ought to be considered a nation at all. There's There are calls to erase the border altogether, uh, which, of course, is dividing America uh, even further. Your thoughts on why having borders is important in terms of maintaining a nationality whose history is worth remembering? Well, it's important for a number of reasons. I mean, one is the fact that if you just do away with national borders, you're going to have all kinds of problems with crime, with the social systems and uh, smuggling and things of that nature. You have to have some kinds of controls because we have a great country here. A lot of folks from the developing world would like to come here, and I'm not against them coming here, but it has to be done in an orderly way. Uh, The system couldn't absorb so many people just descending on it all at once. And the other thing that's different these days than used to be, like 100 years ago when immigrants came, and they were coming from all over the world, but they came here to be Americans, and they were taught what that meant, and they understood it, and they absorbed it, they assimilated, and they wanted that. Uh, There was a sense of nationalism. Today, immigrants are told, well, you don't have to assimilate to this country, you know, the the country that's already being described in negative terms. Uh, You keep your own language, you keep your own culture, you know, and maintain a part. Well, that's not good for national unity because if people believe that they don't have to give something to the country that they're coming to, then they won't. They'll just take from it, and that creates uh, anger and division and lack of understanding. Where do we go from here? And are you optimistic that we can regain a regard for our history that will be a unifying factor as we move forward? Yes, I think so. I think people are becoming much more aware of this issue. And in in the back of the book, I have a number of recommendations for things that people can do to try to change the course a little bit. And one important recommendation I make is that people share their family stories of America, uh, whether it goes back one generation or many generations. Uh, you know, what's the family history in America? How has the uh, American dream been manifested in your own family? Or maybe it hasn't, but, you know, maybe it will. And and try to rekindle that sense, that sentiment of uh, affection for the country, because we all came from somewhere. And when you make it that real, I think it makes it much more meaningful to people. When we honor our own country, for example, the phrase, God bless America, some would suggest that we're being arrogant and exclusive and imagine ourselves to be superior. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're excluding other countries and we hope that they experience God's favor as well. Is it, uh, is it nationalistic and arrogant uh, to hope for the best with regard to the country you happen to be in? Well, I doubt it. I, I, I think it's okay to say that we live in a great country. I, I firmly believe that we do. It's not perfect, but it's ours, and we can make it even better. It's good to approach it optimistically and to think that things can get better. If folks in other countries want to feel great about their countries, that's good too. Everybody should. It's good to feel good about where you live, and it's good to improve it. And I don't think that it's I mean, nationalistic in a negative way to say, you know, USA or, you know, we have a great country. Why not? We do have a great country. And if we, if we take that not as, so, as a, uh, you know, an emotional thing, but as, as a reasonable thing, like be able to say, 
here's why our country is so good. It's not an insult to anybody else. We're just saying, you know what, we have a lot going for us and we should be grateful about that. Well, I appreciate the book so much and would recommend it to our listeners. Again, we're talking about erasing America, losing our future by destroying our past. Uh, Dr. Robbins, thank you so much for talking with us today. Uh, Thank you. My pleasure. Appreciate it very much. And by the way, the book is published by Regnery. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. Then we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back five minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. I should mention Dave King is engineering today's program. James Blend Vacationing, the producer, will be back tomorrow. Well, legal experts are clashing over whether the uh, uh, plea deal made with uh, Mr. Cohen is threatening the presidency. Michael Cohen's uh, plea deal uh, it chucked a pretty live grenade into the uh, debate over President Trump's legal exposure. But that debate is far from settled. There's questions as to whether or not you can indict a sitting president. There's questions whether or not there are grounds for uh, impeachment. There are questions of whether or not there's a legal statute that was broken at all. In fact, I was listening to some very interesting legal analysis earlier in the day suggesting that there was no statute that prevents an individual from contributing in the way the president did to um, protect his reputation. So I'm not a legal scholar. and I'm not a, an attorney, so I don't know which of these versions is true, but there's a lot of uh, questions being made and a lot of debate over what happens next. Well, the president's former longtime personal attorney and self-described fixer entered a guilty plea with federal prosecutors on Tuesday, admitting to violating campaign finance laws by arranging hush money payments uh, to two women that the president didn't uh, want or then civilian Donald Trump didn't want uh, to be brought up during the campaign. Uh, he claimed, uh, President Trump claimed um, uh, the move to pay off these uh, two women was not a crime, suggesting that these allegations can be settled by a fine. Uh, in fact, the one of the legal analysts I heard earlier today said it's not a, uh, a criminal uh, act. It might be a misdemeanor, and that may in fact be uh, a true assessment. Again, I don't know. Well, Michael Cohen pled guilty to two counts of campaign finance violations that are not a crime. Uh, Obama had a big campaign finance violation, and it was uh, easily settled, the president tweeted on uh, this morning. Michael Cohen pled guilty to two counts of uh, campaign finance violations, and that's really at the heart of the question over whether or not this will be the undoing of uh, the president. Well, the president was referring to former President Barack Obama's 2008 campaign, which was fined $375,000 by the Federal Election Commission for a series of missing notices for more than 1,300 contributions. They totaled $1.8 million. But Lanny Davis, Cohen's attorney, argued that there is uh, little room for interpretation here. There is no question, he says, that he's committed a federal crime, referring to his client and therefore the president. Uh, On Wednesday, he also argued that it's never been settled whether a sitting president can be indicted, despite suggestions that, to the contrary, from Trump allies. Well, he added that his client, um, Mr. Cohen, under oath on Tuesday, admitted to making the donations to keep quiet two women at Trump's direction. At issue is the $130,000 hush money payment. Now, one of the arguments I heard earlier in the day, that if the... the um, money was paid at the behest of the candidate, and it was uh, at an amount that didn't um, exceed what an individual is uh, permitted to pay, then it would be a crime for the attorney, but not for 
uh, the candidate. Again, it's rather confusing, and I'm not an attorney. So you've got dueling views from very credible uh, legal minds, partisan perhaps, but uh, brilliant legal minds. At issue is that $130,000 hush money payment uh, made on behalf of the president. Mr. Trump wasn't willing to sign those checks, Lanny Davis says. He directed Mr. Cohen to make those hush money payments, which is a federal crime. Not so sure about that. He said, if Michael Cohen agreed to that, then certainly Donald Trump is guilty of the same crime. Former commissioner, commissioner rather, of the, Fe- the Federal Election Commission, Hans von Spakovsky, said that Cohen's decision to plead guilty does not necessarily mean the president violated the law. This is not a violation because this was not a campaign-related offense. He suggests, yes, Cohen pled guilty to it, yeah, Cohen paid it, but then Cohen was reimbursed by Trump. While the plea deal states that the payments were, in fact, meant to influence the election, though that could be argued by Trump's lawyers if uh, it ever came to that, Spakovsky said that uh, Trump had a history of making those kinds of payments before he was a candidate. Further, he He said a candidate can spend as much of their own money as they want to, even if it was a campaign-related expense. Well, Harvard uh, Law Professor Emeritus Alan Dershowitz, a frequent defender of the president, made a similar argument. I I would refer to him more a frequent defender of the law rather than the president. He is not a, a fan. But he says, you have to uh, show that it's a crime, he told Fox and Friends. He said, it's not a crime for a candidate like Trump to contribute to his own campaign and probably not even a crime to direct someone else to contribute if the plans uh, to pay uh, that back. Further, Dershowitz said, the only evidence that the president did anything that might be unlawful comes from a man who's admitted to be a liar. There are a lot of barriers, he said. We are far away from an impeachable offense or a, cr- a criminal offense on the part of the president. Richard Painter, who's a former White House chief ethics counsel under former President George W. Bush, said that while Cohen's guilty plea gives uh, the president exposure to criminal prosecution, these types of cases can be difficult to win. Painter, who ran unsuccessfully as a Democrat for U.S. Senate in Minnesota this month, cited the case of former vice presidential nominee John Edwards as precedent. Edwards was invited in 2011 on charges of using illegal campaign uh, donations to conceal an extramarital affair to prevent his run from the White House from uh, capsizing. Edwards ultimately was acquitted of one count and the jury deadlocked on the others. It's not entirely clear how these cases turn out, as we found out with Edwards, Painter points out. And he added, though, that he felt that Cohen-Trump payments were more serious than former President Bill Clinton lying about Monica Lewinsky as campaign finance is a more important uh, aspect of our democracy than the president lying under oath in a civil case. Well, Painter added that while there is potential criminal liability, it's not cut and dry He suggested the president's problems go beyond Cohen. If you had a president with no other legal problems who just had the Cohen problem, I would say the outcome of a criminal trial for Trump based on that alone is a maybe, maybe not situation. He went on to explain, but Trump's problem is not just this. He has the whole Russia thing. He has two big problems. One is uh, what his own involvement or knowledge of collusion was, and the second, where he he has much more exposure and is digging his own grave, is obstruction of justice. Again, uh, the Mueller investigation has not uncovered either as of yet. 
But these are the two issues that might complicate the situation for the president. Uh, president Trump has denied any collusion with Russia in the election and continues to call for the special counsel probe uh, to end and referring to it as a witch hunt. Professor of law at George Washington University, Jonathan Turley, though, he said the president could end up an unindicted co-conspirator uh, in the Cohen matter. On Wednesday, he agreed that the Cohen plea alone uh, would not make a particularly strong case, but suggested there's more to come. I don't know if he knows there's more to come or he's suggesting there might be. You have the president's lawyer implicating him in federal crime. How Trump responds to that is going to be very key, Turley said. Uh, but the Justice Department certifies that they believe these allegations are accurate. Uh, that should be quite chilling because this isn't some... Uh, uh, immaculate crime committed by Cohen alone. Well, Turley said that the federal prosecutors now will likely pursue other collateral or central players, and uh, the drama will continue. Andrew McCarthy had this to say about the controversy as we try to understand what this might mean moving forward. He writes that from a political standpoint, the guilty plea of the president's lawyer, Michael Cohen, is the more damaging news. Cohen pled guilty to eight felonies, while the five counts of failure to pay taxes on over $4 million in income are the most consequential to him. Most significant to the country are two counts of illegal in-kind campaign contributions. These, of course, involve $280,000 in hush money. Uh, prior to the 2016 election uh, um, uh, to two women who claimed to have had a relationship with uh, Donald Trump many years before. In entering his guilty plea in Manhattan Federal Court in Southern District of New York, he acknowledged, Cohen acknowledged that he was directed to make the payments by Donald Trump, referring to, referred to as the candidate. Well, let's split some legal hairs, he writes. The media narrative suggests that these payments violate federal law because they were made to influence the outcome of the election. That is not quite accurate. It was not illegal to pay hush money to the two women. Um, it uh, was illegal for Michael Cohen to make in-kind contributions, which is what these payoffs were in excess of the legal limit. Specifically, it was illegal for Michael Cohen to make contributions exceeding $2,700 per election to a presidential candidate, including contributions coordinated with the candidate, and illegal for the candidate to accept contributions in excess of that amount. It was also illegal for corporations to contribute to candidates, including expenditures coordinated with the candidate, and for the candidate to accept such contributions. The latter illegality is relevant because Cohen formed corporations to transfer hush money. The law does not impose a dollar limit on the candidate himself. Donald Trump could lawfully have made contributions and expenditures in excess of $2,700 per election because of that and because, unlike Cohen, Trump is a non-lawyer who may not have fully appreciated the campaign finance implications. It would be tough to prove that the president had criminal intent. Nevertheless, that may not get the president off the hook. As noted above, it is illegal for a candidate to accept excessive contributions, which this technically was not, but at least for a short period of time until they were reimbursed, could be interpreted that way. It is also illegal to fail to report contributions and expenditures and to conspire in or aid and abet another person's excessive contributions. Moreover, we are talking here about hush money expenditures, so drawing a distinction between payment and the failure to report is pointless since the intention not to report is implicit in this kind of payment. Again, it's um, kind of getting in the weeds uh, legally, uh, but it does at least give you some indication of what um, lawyers are thinking. Now, the interesting thing to me is that there's no broad agreement as to what this might mean. On the one hand, the suggestion is this was private money spent by the candidate uh, on his own behalf. Uh, on the other hand, his attorney spent the money um, and then was reimbursed, and so was it a campaign contribution made by the 
again, it's all very, all very complicated. Um, Nate Jackson says this, a man's private morality does affect his ability to govern. At a bare minimum, the bad press is a distraction. At worst, it reveals a deep untrustworthiness that plays out in policy and personal decisions. Hush money and other legal wrangling over filings or flings with porn stars could seriously jeopardize the president. Um, unfortunately, that warning proved all too prescient in yesterday's news about Michael Cohen and Paul Manafort. More on that in a minute. Then he goes on to say Trump may not be a good man, but he's been a good president. He has, as Mark Alexander noted recently, dropped a bomb on the status quo in Washington as desperately needed bomb, a desperately needed bomb. No wonder he's a target for destruction. Now, it's interesting that during the Clinton controversy, uh, those on the right conservatives were very outspoken about the fact that character matters. Uh, those on the left appreciated what uh, Clinton was doing, and therefore character mattered less. Fast forward to 2018, and many conservatives are suggesting, and I'm not saying all, but many are suggesting that character doesn't really matter as long as what the president does uh, is in our best interest. And you could certainly argue that uh, the president has made some uh, some good decisions. But does character still matter? Well, he goes on to write... Um, uh, as David French argues, there is no universe that exists under which all of the Make America Great Again folks wouldn't be calling for Hillary's impeachment or resignation under similar facts. Um, I won't read all of it, but he goes on from there. So it's a very complicated issue in terms of whether or not the law was violated. It's a very complicated, well, I suppose a less complicated issue in considering whether or not uh, we can evaluate one's moral character and the importance of it in leading a nation. I'll leave that open uh, for your own judgment. 17 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 22 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, on Tuesday, well, let me, let me start here. Uh, Brennan, top headlines just a moment ago. Omarosa. All anybody was talking about Don McCann, the uh, White House counsel and what he said, what he didn't say. Well, it's interesting how major news stories are big headlines one moment and then something comes and shoves it out of the way and we're moving on to something else. But one of the big issues just a few moments ago was uh, whether or not the security clearance of Mr. Brennan was uh, appropriately with, withdrawn by the president. And I thought it interesting uh, to take a look at what security clearance is and why former officials still have them. Well, you know the story of the president uh, abruptly revoking the security clear, uh, clearance rather of former CIA director John Brennan. There's no real argument as to whether or not he has the executive authority to do it. Now, some have questioned whether or not he should have, um, but the president said that he has a unique constitutional responsibility to protect the nation's classified information while announcing that he yanked that clearance. Well, the move sparked a debate over whether uh, former officials should still have security clearances. So who gets security clearances in the first place? Uh, individuals who, for a variety of reasons, need access to classified information. Well, that's the short answer. Uh, they're given to people who have uh, uh, undergone background checks, whose personal and professional history affirmatively indicate loyalty to the United States. Again, no big news there. Well, aside from allegiance to the United States, officials are also looking at sexual behavior, financial situations, alcohol and drug use, mental health, and potential foreign influences when determining if a person can get security clearance. This is in the first place. Well, the process uh, to be granted that kind of clearance is complex. It's very detailed. Um, 
A lawyer specializing in security clearances says that a more than 100-page form has to be filled out. Investigators interview the individual in addition to friends and family and other references. So this is an extensive background check, if you will. Some agencies like the CIA and the FBI, they can also require individuals to sit for a a polygraph test to affirm that they are, in fact, telling the truth. Well, According to a government accountability office, uh, about 4.2 million people had or were eligible for a security clearance by October of 2015, um, as estimated by the um, Office of um, Government Accountability. Well, are there are all the security clearances the same? Now, again, it's not too surprising to learn that there are different levels of security clearance. Federal agencies can determine how to ensure access to classified information uh, is clearly consistent with the interests of national security and who has access to different levels of information. People who receive the highest level of clearances, which was the case with Mr. Brennan, uh, don't necessarily get to see every piece of sensitive material. Um, but they do, uh, in most cases, these individuals are granted information that you have a need to know uh, or on a need to know basis or something that they're directly working on. Uh, in contrast, those of the lower level security clearance don't deal very much with classified information at all. It's more of a rarity. Security clearances are costly because of the process that's necessary to get one. Uh, a job search website for those uh, with security clearances, uh, which is called uh, clearancejobs.com, um, they are responsible for the process of obtaining one, including the Office of Personnel Management, can cost government agencies and federal contractors thousands of dollars per individual, depending on uh, your level and the level of scrutiny. So how long do they last? Well, security clearances are subject to renewal every few years, though they theoretically can last a person's lifetime, which was the case with Mr. Brennan and several other high-level individuals with that kind of security clearance. For example, the Department of Defense says a period uh, reinvestigation, five years for a top uh, top security clearance, 10 years for a secret clearance, 15 years for a confidential clearance. Again, these uh, reflecting the different levels that one can get. Well, just because an official has left the federal government doesn't mean his or her security clearance is automatically revoked. In a good number of cases, clearances are automatically active for up to several years. Former National Security Council staffer Elliot Abrams said that he and others continue to keep their security clearances even after the Bush administration for at least a year because the incoming Obama White House thought uh, that in the early months of a new administration, we might have some useful insights to impart, information about how past events had developed or uh, uh, impressions of uh, top people in foreign governments and so on. And the successor wanted to be able to discuss classified information with them um, and uh, elicit our, their views. Well, it's not so much a benefit to the person. It's more of a benefit to the particular government officials who would need some insight from top uh, from times prior to theirs. Well, he also says, uh, pointed out that someone maintaining their class of their clearance after leaving office doesn't necessarily have access to classified information unless a current agency requests it. So it's not as if they're still being used. It is a classification that is a resume enhancement. It certainly can gain, uh, uh, give you access where others, because of your bona fides, it can give you access where others might not. It might uh, make you more, um, appealing to an employer or an opportunity than others who do not have it. Well, security clearances can also provide a financial bump for some in the private sector. According to clearancejobs.com, the average salary for those with active security clearances is 93000 
uh, $4. So it does enhance one's resume and one's wallet. Well, the ClarenceJobs.com report also cautioned that in order to see a higher salary, employees must have not only the right kind of security clearance, but also the right skill set. So um, that gives you at least some understanding of how that whole thing works, whether or not it's all that interesting. When we come back, we're going to talk about Anglicans who pinned 95 theses style complaints on LGBT issues to doors of five UK cathedrals. These declarations were posted on the doors of Rochester Cathedral, um, uh, among others, on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of last week. Anonymous evangelical Anglicans posted these to make a point. We'll tell you what that point was when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, anonymous evangelical Anglicans posted a 95 thesis style complaint on the doors of five British cathedrals. The first complaints went up to uh, what up on the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's posting of the 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church in Germany. And the documents penned to the door referenced Luther and calling for the Church of England to follow the Bible on LGBTQ issues. 500 years ago, it it reads, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the church door in Germany. One document reads, he did it because the church had become corrupt. Today, a declaration is being fixed to a cathedral door here in England because the established church in our land is becoming corrupt, end quote. The Church of England claims it has not changed its doctrine, but its practice on the ground has already changed. Clergy are adopting lifestyles which are not biblical and teaching that such lifestyles are holy in the sight of God, the document explains. This revisionism is causing a crisis not only in Southwark diocese, but across the whole of the Church of England. Well, the document issues a very hefty charge saying when the church redefines sin and eliminates repentance, it can no longer offer the good news of eternal salvation from sin in Jesus. The church no longer remains distinctly Christian. It is no longer salt and light in the world, the declaration reads. This document ends with a clear Reformation-style challenge where leaders refuse to repent and submit themselves to the word of God. The Lord raises up new leaders for his church and new structures, just as he did through Martin Luther 500 years ago. Well, along with the declaration, Alekin's uh, Anglicans, rather, posted the Southwark Declaration, a statement affirming traditional biblical sexuality, similar to the Nashville Statement, saying, We affirm the divine inspiration of the Holy Scriptures and their supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct, the Declaration reads. We affirm the teaching of Scripture, Genesis 2.24, Mark 10.7, Matthew 19.5, the Book of Common Prayers and the Canon B30, that marriage is the union of one man and one woman for life. We affirm it is the one God-ordained context for sexual Relations. The declaration concludes by calling upon the bishops, archdioceans, and the senior staff of the diocese, alongside all clergy and licensed lay ministers, to affirm these truths, live by them, and to teach in accordance to them. Anonymous uh, Anglicans posted the documents to multiple churches on different days throughout the week, and uh, there was a list of the uh, cathedrals I won't go into now, but a rather interesting effort on the part of theologically conservative Anglicans to influence the direction of the church. And the Military Religious Freedom Foundation is an organization that trolls military bases in search of any public display of Christian faith. Well, the group is typically triggered by nativity scenes, Bibles being placed on um, missing man tables, and so on. Well, Foundation founder Mikey Weinstein was especially angered to learn that... um, 
a, uh, a member of the Air Force, a general, in fact, actually owns a website called Prayer at Lunchtime for the United States. The website encourages Bible-believing Americans to take time to specifically pray for our nation at lunchtime every day. Now, it also features a prayer list, including, among others, President Trump, Vice President Mike Pence, Congress, and the military. Under the previous administration, it uh, listed the names of those officials. Weinstein demanded that uh, Defense Secretary James Mattis launch an immediate investigation calling a General Tyshirt a fundamentalist Christian Ty- tyrant, and religious extremist predator. Well, the Military Religious Freedom Foundation uh, claims to represent 41 people at Edwards Air Force Base who are allegedly offended by the general's personal website. Brigadier General Teichert's disgraceful, illegal, and brazen promotion of his personal favor of his weaponized version of Christianity represents one of the worst and most egregious cases of MRFF, uh, that they've ever encountered in its 13 years of First Amendment civil rights advocacy, Weinstein said in a prepared statement. Well, he went on to allege that the general's website violates the Uniform Code of Military Justice and demanded that he be investigated, prosecuted, convicted, convicted rather, and punished. Well, Gen- General uh, Tyshirt should be doing a time behind bars, not commanding a wing wearing a general stars, Weinstein went on to say. Well, the Pentagon hasn't responded to inquiries about um, Weinstein's complaint, but the allegations are so outlandish, they deserve no response. Well, the Air Force appears to be doing exactly what it should upon receiving the complaint from uh, Mike Weinstein, ignoring him at this point. First Liberty Institute attorney Mike Berry said that, like so many complaints by this organization, this complaint is vindictive, intolerant, and completely without merit. First Liberty Institute is one of the nation's most respected law firms handling religious liberty cases. It's not representing Mr. Ty- or General Teicher. Bigoted demands that are an officer be thrown in military prison because he prays for others should be rejected out of hand, First Liberty Institute uh, said. Well, during the Obama administration, Weinstein once bragged about having a, a hotline to the Pentagon. It's beyond uh, time for the Trump administration to connect, or rather disconnect that number, and perhaps the absence of a response is some evidence that that has been the case. It's time to put a stop to these um, attacks on Christian members of our military, who in their, in this case, in his own personal time, in his own personal space online, was doing little more than praying for the nation and encouraging others to do the same. We'll continue to follow this story if, in fact, the uh, Air Force decides that it will respond to this um, complaint. John Sexton, uh, writing... um, points out that two weeks ago he had written about a Patriot prayer rally in Portland in which several hundred counter-protesters, including black-clad Antifa, showed up. One incident which caught his attention was a fight over an American flag. When the guy holding the flag wouldn't let go, one of the Antifa members stepped in and hit him on the head with a club. He collapsed to the street with blood dripping from his scalp, and um, the rest of the story one can imagine. Well, the Oregonian did a follow-up story on the incident. And one of the things we talked about, it was either this or last week, was how the rise of Nazism occurred in in Germany and how the brown shirts were given a certain uh, area of latitude because they opposed uh, communists, and it was convenient for the government to sort of let them be the thugs uh, to confront that um, that challenge, that threat to uh, to Germany. Um, and how, in similar ways, Antifa is given a certain amount of latitude in terms of their violent response, because there is a particular group that should rightfully be opposed, but not necessarily in the way that 
uh, Antifa does as it is masked along the way. Anyway, the Oregonian did a follow-up, and it turns out that the man holding on to that flag wasn't there with Patriot Prayer. And he looked like it because he was holding a flag, and that is such an offensive symbol that the assumption was made that if an American standing in a crowd holding a flag was holding a flag, that he must be the enemy. This guy was not with Patriot Prayer or any other right-leaning group. In fact, Paul Welch, his name, is a registered Democrat and a Bernie bro, as he's called, a slightly progressive leftist by his telling. He was uh, He's a registered Democrat in Oregon. Voting records show he cast his ballot for Bernie Sanders in the 2016 presidential primary, Hillary Clinton in the general election, he said. The 38-year-old uh, line cook is also no stranger to street protests in Portland. He said he attended the Women's March held during the weekend of Donald Trump's inauguration. He brought a flag to make a statement about the right not having uh, owners of its uh, of it, the flag, uh, at protests, and he says he didn't have any problems until a couple of Antifa members, who of course were masked, approached him and demanded he relinquish the fascist symbol. This harkens back to my conversation earlier today with James Robin. He carried his flag. Two anti-fascist activists dressed in black and covered uh, with covered faces approached him, demanded he turn it over to them. His flag given to them, calling it a fascist symbol. The armed counter-protester then used a weapon to club Welch in the back of the head, causing him to collapse instantly. The demonstrator with the weapon wandered off. And, of course, he could not be identified, face masked. Uh, My bones turned to jello, and I just went down, Mr. Welch said, who believes he was struck with a metal object affixed to the end of a weapon. A crowd of onlookers watched as Welch lied on the ground in a fetal position. Another uh, Antifa activist holding a shield appeared to stand over the injured man, jabbed him with a makeshift weapon himself. I remember thinking there is a very good chance that I could be beaten to death, Welch said. He eventually made it um, to an urgent care clinic, received four staples in his scalp to hold the wound together. He also claims uh, it took him three days to recover from the concussion. Reflecting on his experience being the target of violent Antifa goons, Welch told the Oregonian, it's kind of like you're playing into your opponent's hands when you do that sort of thing. That's not what I was there for. Of course, that's not what anyone is there for to be uh, clubbed, but the interesting thing about the way the story was uh, was presented wasn't necessarily that Antifa uh, was wrong, but that they had simply identified the wrong man. Clubbing someone over the head if they happened to be, to be a white supremacist was acceptable, uh, but clubbing someone that they mistook for a white supremacist or uh, someone who was a part of this Patriot Prayer group um, was less offensive. And that's sort of where we are today. If you didn't have the opportunity to hear my conversation with James Robin earlier in the program at about 4.30, you can pick that up on our podcast. His book is titled Erasing America, Losing Our Future by Destroying Our Past, in which he writes about the division that exists among us and the ongoing battle over our history and the meaning of our symbols uh, and the value of ordered liberty. Uh, it's a great read on the subject, um, which I think this is an example of the the, the danger we are in at this point. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We um, will have one final segment. We'll let you know what's going on with the air quality here in the Portland area. It's been a little bit of a rough season. I know that my eyes have been a bit more scratchy. My throat's a bit uh, uh, scratchier. We're uh, told that perhaps tomorrow things will be a little bit better. We'll let you know what the latest is. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back 49 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the air quality in and around the Portland area, plagued for the last uh, several days with this thick wildfire smoke, improved slightly this morning. It's uh, still just as wrong, uh, just on the wrong side of the unhealthy level, however, so we're not... Uh, we're not out of the woods yet. As of uh, this morning, the air quality index, which measures pollutants in the air, was at 151, uh, just over the threshold into the range of the index deemed unhealthy by the state officials. That's unhealthy for everyone. That means at least for one more day, residents in the affected area were advised to stay indoors if possible and to limit physical demanding activities. Well, air quality around the state was also much improved, uh, though unhealthy levels of of uh, particulate matter still remained in the atmosphere in some locations, including Ashland, Cave Junction, and Medford. Grateful to be north of them. Uh, relief is on the way, though. The National Weather Service reported a big change in the weather is just around the corner. One more day of smoke, haze, and poor air quality before the major pattern change begins, bringing cooler temperatures and even a touch of early fall for the next several days. I actually read that we're going to have temperatures in the 70s. I have a vague recollection of uh, cooler temperatures in the 70s. I've literally spent my summer trying to keep plants alive by watering. I go home, fix dinner, clean up after dinner, go outside and water stuff. I planted new things this year and you have to be extra vigilant to keep them alive. I've managed to do that so far, but I'm really looking forward to that little reprieve that's coming and maybe more fall-like weather in the days ahead so that I can spend uh, less time watering and more time just enjoying the garden. Well, a magnitude 6.2 earthquake hit off the coast of Reedsport early uh, this morning. The United States Geological Survey says quakes uh, with a preliminary magnitude of 6.2 struck just after 1.30 a.m., more than 170 miles uh, west of Coos Bay, Oregon. The National Weather Service said no tsunami alert was issued, as we all know by now. Uh, Robert Sanders of the USGS says there's no tsunami threat associated with the quake. He says people as far away as Portland reported feeling the tremor. Uh, someone asked me earlier today if it was felt, and I hadn't heard anyone say that they had, but apparently if you were awake at that time of the morning, that there's a small possibility, a slight possibility, you might have felt it as some in the Portland area did. Dispatch with the Coos Bay police say that there uh, have been no reports of damage or injury. Coos Bay is about 220 miles southwest of Portland. The quake was located at a depth of about six miles. So, again, it wasn't felt as uh, strongly as it might have if it uh, originated on land. But this is just another of the quakes that we've been hearing about in the ring of fire that could indicate something larger on its way as um, some are warning. Now, the truth is we don't know for certain. It's interesting to follow what uh, uh, geologists are telling us and what they think, but we don't actually know. It is a, a good opportunity for us to think about, am I prepared for uh, a large earthquake? And if services were suspended for any length of time, do I have a source of water? Do I have uh, food put away uh, that we could eat for several days? Because I, I think, if I recall correctly, it uh, could mean that services are down for a minimum of four days. Could you survive for four days on what you have? Do you have a way of cooking food or do you have uh, food that store that wouldn't require electricity? Uh, and the main thing being water as well. Do you have other supplies? So uh, we've been urged to uh, be prepared for any kind of um, event that we're not anticipating. And this is another opportunity to uh, check out, do I have what I need? And I think water can only be kept for a limited amount of time. So you might need to switch that out for a, for fresher water. So keep that in mind if you, um, if you need to 
uh, be prepared for the possibility of an earthquake. And again, uh, nobody knows with any certainty that that's coming at any time soon, but they're saying that um, this could, in fact, uh, lead to, because there's so many earthquakes in that so-called ring of fire, that it could lead to something, uh, something larger. So keep that in mind. Well, tomorrow on the program, James Blend will be returning. As you know, he is uh, responsible for a major part of Fish Fest that took place this weekend, and what a great event it was. Now, I have to admit, I didn't have the opportunity to attend, but by all accounts, it was a great event, another success. And so um, he took the ne- the next or uh, the last several days off. We'll be back on um, on Thursday, but I want to take a moment to thank Dave King, who steps in from time to time to engineer the program. Well, I really appreciate your your stepping in. It's it's interesting to think about how a radio station works. Uh, if someone takes a day off or if someone is ill, there's got to be someone to step in and take their place. Things don't just uh, happen. So I really appreciate that um, uh, Dave has uh, been willing to step up and step in, and that's what he has um, has done this time around. So appreciate that very much. Well, I mentioned earlier in the program that uh, families and churches and ministries in California are very concerned about uh, the passage of AB 2943. The Senate passed it uh, last week with a vote of 25 to 11 to adopt it, sending it back to the assembly where the Senate um, uh, changes have to be approved by the the House. And pro-family activists in California are asking for uh, citizens there and for people outside of California to pray to urge the governor of, uh, of California, Jerry Brown, to veto the bill that some critics say would effectively ban the sale of the Bible in the state. Now, that is an overstatement of, of what would happen, but uh, there is genuine concern about whether or not certain passages of the Bible could be criminalized if they refer to a biblical view on sexuality and and moral purity. The bill has been disputed hotly for months, and last month uh, was delayed voluntarily in the state Senate. Some say that was uh, related to a decision that was released by the U.S. Supreme Court, but they have since moved forward, and the Senate has now uh, voted 25 to 11 to adopt it, uh, sending it back to the Assembly where the Senate changes have to be approved. It then will go to Governor Brown. The legislation comes amid the release of a Liberty Council study showing that uh, the kinds of therapies that this condemns are overwhelmingly effective. Now, they refer to it as um, a particular kind of a ther- of therapy, um, that most uh, people who are providing counseling are not engaged in, but the legislation, uh, the study rather, is uh, effects of therapy on religious men who have unwanted same-sex attraction. The author is Paul Santero, Neil Whitehead, and Dolores Balaresto, all PhDs, and they found the American Psychological Association and other organizations have formally claimed that sexual orientation change therapies should not be used because they are probably ineffective and may cause harm. Well, a survey asked for negative and positive experiences among 125 men with active lay religious uh, belief uh, who went through sexual orientation change efforts. Uh, strongly conflict with those uh, claims. In their study, most of those who participated in group or professional help had heterosexual shifts in sexual attraction, identity, behavior with large statistical effect sizes, similarly a moderate to uh, marked decrease in suicide. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce suicidology, depression, substance abuse, increases in social functioning and self-harm. So they're offering that as a counterweight to uh, what is being claimed in support of this law. Uh, But what happens in the next few days, uh, the House taking this up, in fact, they may have done that today, we don't know. 
But they are asking in the state of California for those of us outside of the state to be praying about the uh, the future of this legislation. It would certainly jeopardize the sale of certain literature in the state of California, uh, certain counseling uh, practices. It may have an impact on what can be taught from the pulpit, what counselors within a church context can do. Although some lawmakers are suggesting if there is no money changing hands, then it would not apply. Now, what that means in the context of a church is unclear. If uh, there are offerings being taken in the course of a regular church service and someone goes to that church for counseling and the person who provides the counseling is salaried by the church, then that could, um, uh, that could mean that the church cannot provide that kind of counseling. So it's not altogether clear because the language is so broad, but AB 2943 is on its way to being signed into law in the state of California, um, which in many cases is a bellwether state uh, for other uh, states across the country. So be in prayer about that and we'll certainly let you know what happens uh, in the short term. All right, 58 minutes, uh, almost 59 minutes after 5 o'clock is our time. Hope you'll join us here tomorrow. I have no idea who our guest will be because, well, I just have no idea. So <laughs> it'll be a mystery to uh, to be solved by all of us. But I hope you have a great night and will join us tomorrow. Again, Dave King, thank you so much for engineering these last few days. Appreciate it very much. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs>